Well, I, I have to confess to you all that I, I bit the bullet today. I didn't take my bike, but I was tempted to. You know, it's 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 not that bad out, but it's a bit windy and a bit cold. And I said, ah, heck with it, you know. So anyway, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. And people on Zoom, thank you for tuning in. Uh, the last two weeks, we spoke, of course, about the Israel-Hamas war. I might uh, just have a couple of words to say on the subject, but then I'd like to try something different because, you know, there are there are other things in the world that are happening besides this. But of course, this is really front and center for for uh, pretty well um, all the news agencies. When you when you tune in to BBC or or CNN or CBC, the first the first running story is about the war in the Middle East because it's that important and it's that newsworthy. Um, to say uh, <clears throat> that this is having an effect all around the world is true, because um, the the you know it's, it's like if you if you drop an explosion in one place, the sound waves and the shock waves spread out all around, and it's pretty well spread out all around the world. Uh, most disturbingly. You might have heard about this uh, airplane that landed in Dagestan, which is in um, the um, central uh, Russian area, uh, where people just stormed the airport to try to get at the airplane, which wasn't an LL airplane. It was a Russian airplane, which landed in Israel, which started off in Israel and was on its, on its way to Moscow, but with a stop in Dagestan. And they just ran to the airplane looking for Jews. It was like a, a kind of almost a, a pogrom-style um, invasion, breaking through, you know, security barriers, which you're not allowed to go on the air, on, uh, you know, and uh, people are not allowed to go on the runways looking for people, but that's what they did until they finally found order. But just a, a two-second word about Dagestan, in case you don't know what it is and where it is, it's a... It's a kind of a one of these sub republics. In other words, it's not. It's not. Um, it w it was never a uh, one of the constituent republics of the Soviet Union, but it was one one level down. So it was an autonomous republic and still is within Russia. So it's part of Russia, but it's the most Islamic part of Russia. In other words, it's the most. A militantly Islamic part of Russia. And you know, years back, there was an Islamic revolution there, which Russia took a long time to control. Um, so it's known for that. Uh, very conservative place. The women wear hijabs. The men wear beards. Um, it's also a place where uh, in the Ukrainian war, there were demonstrations uh, against Russia because... They were grabbing up so many of the young people to go fighting there. And, uh, you know, there was opposition to that. So there was a very brief, a brief opposition to Putin uh, there. And he has, no, he has no friends in Dagestan. Let's put it like that. Um, uh, the, um, the other thing that I wanted to point out was that in some ways, this war has caused the Jews on the left and the Jews on the right to both be very disappointed. 
And the Jews on the left, or we'll call it the moderate left in the US, who have backed every single cause from, you know, black rights, gay rights, trans rights, every rights in the world, when it came to Jews being attacked and murdered, they found like they looked over their shoulders, hey, where's our where's all our friends who who we backed for their causes? How come they're not backing us for our causes? So that's a disappointment on that side. Now, uh, the Jews on the farther left, uh, of course, say, well, you know, look, this is all part of the anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, all of that stuff. And they're still, you know, with their Palestinian flags. But it kind of rings a bit hollow, I would say, in a way. Of course, the Jews on the right who thought that Mr. Netanyahu was a savior, God's gift to mankind, figured out pretty quick that, you know, he wasn't. Um, so the other thing I wanted to point out, of course, it's very newsworthy, is that the Republicans finally got their act together and picked a uh, new Speaker of the House who promptly introduced a, an aid package to Israel of $14.5 billion, um, but nothing to the Ukraine. And that $14.5 billion is conditional on the US cutting how much? $14.5 billion from the budget. In other words, not to increase the budget by any more than they're giving out. So he, you know, the idea is we want to cut back spending. Now, where do you think they wanted to cut the $14.5 billion from? Like, so, from where? Right, from the IRS. In other words, if you're so concerned, if you're so concerned about balancing the budget, you would think the one place you'd want to add money to would be the IRS because they can, for every dollar they spend, you know, in administration, they're collecting back three or five dollars from people who, whose income tax they're checking. But no, they want to take all that billions of dollars from the IRS. So it goes to show kind of where their priorities are, the Republicans. And of course, this will never pass. So it means that it means that either Israel will never get the money that the U.S. has given it, Ukraine will never get the money they're given it, or, or you know, there will be some very hard negotiations between the Senate, which is controlled by the Democrats, and the House of Representatives, which is controlled by the Republicans. So. Uh, in other words, you're looking at stalemate not only on this issue, but on all the issues coming forth, including uh, in November, the, um, the need to refinance the whole U.S. government. And it looks like it's going to be another stalemate or another uh, crisis in that whole uh, episode. Um, the other thing that I would point out to you that's important coming up uh, in U.S. politics anyway, is that there's a vote in Ohio on a referendum to allow abortions or not. And this will be another case where the um, Ohio government, led by a Republican governor, has passed the strictest abortion limitations possible, five weeks or six weeks, uh, and after that you're not allowed an abortion. And people got enough signatures in Ohio to make, a, to make a change in the Ohio Constitution and to add in the Ohio Constitution that abortion will be permanently allowed 
um, you know, uh, with my, many uh, with many liberal conditions. In other words, uh, that the state legislature won't be able from now on to limit how many weeks uh, and who is allowed to have an abortion. So if that passes, it will be a kind of an overriding, an overriding of the legislature led by the Republicans all on this abortion issue. So really, this this sort of great victory that the, that the, the right wing had in getting the Supreme Court of the United States to um, to outlaw the right of women to have an abortion, um, the legislatures in in different states are now having to respond to uh, referendums, and these referendums so far, each and every one has won the right to expand abortion rights, not to restrict them. Anyway, this is part of the whole divide in the United States that's going on. So uh, if you've got some questions about this, the Middle East and, and, and Hamas and all that, I would say use them now because I want to go comp change subjects completely. Okay, so what, what I wanted to speak about was something that happened two weeks ago which was the elections in Poland. So um, I wanted to speak about Poland in general, uh, a little bit of history, and then talk about the um, very, very important elections that took place there two weeks ago, which <clears throat> elections which have changed w one of the, uh, we'll call them three European nationalist uh, governments, um, to two of them. Another, a new one was added also in elections last, last week, but not quite, as, not quite as radical as that one. Oh, just one other point I wanted to make is that, and how the world has responded to this uh, Hamas and Israel crisis. For the most part, I would say that, you know, if you take the median response, it's that they were shocked and horrified by the Hamas uh, massacres which they condemn on the one hand and on the other hand uh, they don't like to see innocent civilians killed in Gaza and they're calling for a ceasefire the 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 United States the United Nations General Assembly voted quite overwhelmingly uh, to ask Israel to have a ceasefire so that's about we'll call that the the, the median response of the world Israel is going to have a ceasefire I'm predicting it. They will have one. But what their aim is, is first of all, to kind of lure uh, Hamas fighters into attacking them so that they will be killed. So this, the Israeli invasion has been a kind of a slow march or slow walk, we'll call it, like a slow walk. If they wanted to take over all of the Gaza Strip, they could have done it in one day. But they didn't want to do that, because mainly because of the hostages, and to allow time for negotiations on the hostages, which are going on day and night. Um, so what they want to do is kind of slow walk this invasion to give time for the hostages to maybe be freed uh, or to come up with a deal. And at the same time, to kind of kill as many Hamas fighters as possible before getting into real deep urban territory. I think that's the strategy. 
I, uh, you know, no one told me, of course, but that would be my guess of what they're doing. And seems to be so far, they're sticking to the plan. But of course, what happened today is, I don't know, purposely or accidentally, they uh, bombed, um, they bombed the Jabalia refugee camp, uh, which um, is highly urbanized. And, uh, you know, a lot of casualties took place. Uh, but a lot of people were killed in that bombing. So don't know if that was a purposeful one or not purposeful one. You know, only they know. But um, it made headlines. And you, you'll see the reverberations of this for days to come. So, um, y yes, uh, yeah. Does Hamas have a lot of what? They, they certainly had them. They had them. They found lots of them. But whenever they find them, they destroy them. The ones that come into Israel are, are, are pretty um, easily detected by Israel over time because they have sound sensors that, uh, and they have vibration sensors and they have lots of sensors that find out if something is going on under the ground. But the one that they found, the last one, the one that was illustrated today in the, um, I saw it in something, I don't remember. I read so much, I don't remember where I saw it. But what it was, it started 300 meters into Gaza. The tunnel was down 20 meters, in other words, 65 feet deep. That's deep. And then it made its way into Israel on a gradually ascending slope and finished about 300 meters into Israel. So um, that's the one. They just they found that one just recently. So they did have, they have more than one. They had many of them. Um, but they're not the, the, um, the, uh, um, the attack on October 7th. I don't seem to remember reading anywhere that that involved tunnels, people coming in through tunnels into Israel. Uh, they, it may have, but I didn't, I didn't see that, that in that particular, that attack was over, came over land, by the sea, and on the land. So they used those three things. The tunnels, I don't think they used for that, but I don't know, yeah. They came one, they did have one through a tunnel and a kibbutz? Yeah, that could be, so they, they used four, methods on top of the land, in the air, by the sea, and in the tunnels. So it was well coordinated. Yeah, I think the tunnel that I was reading about was the one in that one that came through Kibbutz Berry, which is pretty close on the border, you know. So, so um, uh, yeah, and they actually, yeah, that's right. They had a picture of the exit of the tunnel on the, uh, in the news. Yeah, yes. How did they miss it? Well, poor, 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 poor intelligence, just poor intelligence and ignoring whatever hints they had. Because they get lots of, you know what, there's lots of chatter. You know what chatter is? Like there's lots of chatter going on all the time. The intelligence agencies have to pick up what's valid chatter from just plain 
invalid chatter. And they just didn't do it. But, but the reason why was they were not prone to looking for it. They were prone to looking for, at other things. They were distracted by other things, including the huge division in the country and all the demonstrations and all that. Uh, so it was an intelligence failure. It was. The head of intelligence said we failed. Anyway, let me, okay, let's, let's, okay, yes, Bernie, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, it, let, let's put it like this, um, you know, when the uh, issue about the fuel shortage came up, you know, a person could likely ask, well, Hamas seems to have the fuel, where are they getting it from? And Israel pointed to um, uh, fuel tanks, you know, that they say Hamas controls. Now, Israel claim we don't know if they're full or not. Israel says they could be. Uh, but sure, for sure, Hamas has fuel fuel for itself to be running around, um, you know, in their, in their motorcycles and everything else. Um, I think, I don't believe that they're, they're so, I don't, I don't know if in the Western world there are any kind of believers that Hamas is pure and simple um, educational organization, a social organization, a religious organization. They know full well by now that they are a military organization. And they also know full well by now that they are repressing their own people and that people can't have an, a, a different opinion from supporting Hamas. And here's an example. And I saw this with Nick, uh, Nick Schifrin, I think the guy who does from PBS NewsHour. So the issue was about does Hamas um, use schools, mosques, and hospitals as shelters for their own fighters. And are they underneath those schools, mosques, and shelters? And so Nick Schifrin was asking about Hamas stealing um, uh, supplies that are United Nations Relief Agency supplies. And um, the, the United Nations uh, delegate, the United Nations, the head of the UN force in Gaza was trying to orient the uh, reporting toward all the suffering that's been going on in Gaza. And Nick Schiffman was saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I was in Gaza. I was a reporter in Gaza, and I remember Hamas stealing from the United Nations, using schools as um, uh, and, and schools as human shields and mosques as human shields. And you could see that the, the uh, United Nations guy on the, he, he couldn't say, yes, we know they do it, because he could be arrested. 
So his whole aim was to deflect and go back to his original message. But you could see how uncomfortable he was. Like you could see that he, he wanted to say, oh, you know, look, we have to put up with these people, but that's the only way that we could be allowed to report. Otherwise, if we reported exactly what we saw, we could be in jail, you see? So, so that's the, uh, you, you know, but the world knows that Hamas does this at this point. There isn't like this skew and cry about, you know, um, you know, Israel destroying a mosque or something like that because they know that Hamas operates out of these places and stores their weapons in those places. So, uh, but the big, big thing now is, of course, the hospital. The Shifa Hospital in Gaza City is the biggest hospital in the whole Gaza Strip. And that, underneath that hospital is a Hamas headquarters. So the question is, what's Israel supposed to do in, the, in this uh, incident? They've already gotten into the tunnels. So this invasion that Israel has done over the last two days, Israel has already gotten into the tunnels in the north part of Gaza. Um, but of course, the tunnel system is so elaborate that the Hamas fighters can go in and out of the tunnels and to different tunnels. And, and um, you know, uh, if Israel destroys uh, the tunnels that they find, there's plenty of other ones that are uh, in the Gaza Strip, which Israel knows about, and some which Israel doesn't know about. So that's even, you know, even a worse issue. Yeah. Well, 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 first of all, I would say, I would say that this is not accurate, what you're saying. It, I'd say it isn't accurate. Now, some students are pro-Palestinian, but not students are pro-Palestinian. Most students in most universities couldn't care less one way or another. Most students in most universities, all they want to do is get on with their lives, do their studies, whatever their interests they have to develop it, you know, to use their education to get a job. That's most students. There are some who are pro-Palestinian. <clears throat> now, those I would divide into two categories, some of whom the whole Palestine issue is the main issue of their sort of political lives. And these are people, for the most part, who are of Palestinian origin themselves, or who are closely associated with that. In other words, other Muslim type students, other Arab students, etc. okay? Now, the second group are people who are pro-Palestinian as part of their so-called radical beliefs altogether. So this is what the, in other words, these people are, uh, they have a whole series of causes that they support, black power, indigenous power, climate change, helping poor people, um, uh, helping migrants and immigrants and illegal immigrants coming to the US. And one of the extra choices that you have to tick off those boxes is to be pro-Palestinian. So there, it goes along with all the rest of them. And, um, you know, uh, that's part of what they're if they, if they identify as a so-called radical or democratic socialist or something like that, they have to tick off all the boxes. They can't just leave one out. So that's the that's the second group. That's the that's the second group. But there's not a lot. 
you could see a demonstration with a couple of hundred people downtown, but there's like 20,000 students in the University of uh, Montreal. Well, remember, as uh, somebody told me, you know, there, there's more, uh, and again, and again, uh, you know, once you're out of the scene, once you're away from the Middle East, okay, so all of the, unless you have close and immediate family there, which many people do, which many people do, then this is a kind of a vicarious way of expressing your identity as a Muslim, your identity as a Palestinian. You're not risking anything. You're not in the middle of the war. You know, what you are saying is, oh, these are my people, this is my team. I have to stick up for them. And I have my flag right here. And I'm marching around and that's the end of it. Not so different from Jews who are here with their Israeli flags marching around in the same way. So it's, it's not, it's not, well, but uh, they're supporting their team, their cause. You know, it's it's that's how that's how it is. Now, there are more Muslims in Quebec than there are Jews in all of Canada. But let's just remember the remember the figures and remember the amounts. And and for any of you who shop in Marseille, Chantral, and the Costco, you know you know that you're in Lebanon. You're not in you're not in Quebec. Let's put it like that. Um, what's that? Well, yeah, for sure, as it used to be. If, if Lebanon was as it used to be, the people wouldn't be here. Let's put it like that. Yeah. Well, Right now, right now, the initiative is all with Israel. They're, they've made a plan. Hopefully, they know that the plan is good. And they will stick to it. And they probably have a few, um, uh, what's called uh, um, uh, possibilities. Uh, if this happens, we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do that. The overwhelming feeling in Israel is to get the hostages back. And pretty well everybody, and I mean everybody in Israel, would be willing to open every prison door, allow every Palestinian out of jail in order to get all those prisoners back. Uh, there is no way that the Israeli public would want the Israel to bomb the Palestinians to the point where every single two million Palestinians are killed, including all the hostages. There's nobody who wants that. So if, that, if that's the case, then Israel has to start making choices. How do we go about achieving the most amount of military gains with the least amount of civilian casualties, the most amount of Hamas elimination without killing the hostages. That is a sophisticated problem which requires a sophisticated solution. And the, the, they're the ones who are trying to do that. So that's what's happened.
Well, no, I mean, in is in but you're talking about in Gaza, right? Well, I mean, Israel asked that more than half of the people living in Gaza move to the other half. They're living everywhere they possibly can. First of all, I'm not sure what percentage of people actually did move, but from what I was kind of sussing out, I, I would say it's about half of the people who are living in northern Gaza, which is most of the people in Gaza, have moved to the, the southern half. They're living everywhere they can, in schoolyards, in, in, in uh, you know, open areas. They're living with friends and relatives like 15 and 16 to a room. Um, uh, they're living any old way they possibly can. Um, you know, Israel uh, has, has uh, <clears throat> agreed to the pressure that the U.S. has put on it to inspect more trucks to go into Gaza. So Israel says, unless a truck is inspected by us, a truck of food aid and other supplies, we're not letting it in, and we're not letting in any fuel. So, and we're letting in water, you know, but the water is, you know, in, in containers and stuff like that. And there's no electricity in Gaza still. So um, it doesn't, it means that the people who are living there are living in very, very, very bad conditions. You can't imagine how bad they are because, um, you know, I remember when we had the blackout, we had a blackout at Passover here in Cote St. Luke. Five days, it was terrible. Like, that's nothing. These people have nothing. These people have nowhere to live. These people don't have water. They don't have hardly any food. So there are more trucks being brought into Gaza. And um, uh, as, as Bernie said, in a certain sense, all of the Gaza population are hostages to the Hamas. In a certain sense, that's what the case is. Because if, if Hamas didn't do what they're doing, Israel would not have been invading. And it, it, even to make it even a bigger thing, if, if Hamas was not there and you had a normal administration there who wanted a peace with Israel, Hamas would not be suffering in any real way. So, uh, you know, there wouldn't be a blockade around it. Workers would be able to go to Israel and vice versa. Uh, and it would be um, not so dissimilar to the West Bank, where the West Bank, for all the difficulties they have and all the blockades they have, uh, the people more or less go about their lives. And there's thousands and thousands of West Bank Palestinians who go to Israel every day to work. Uh, and there's hundreds of Israelis who go into the West Bank every day to buy stuff and to get their car fixed and, and to get haircuts and God knows what else. So, um, uh, you know, that would be as close as possible the equivalent. That's what it would be, you know. Anyway, that's it. Okay, so, uh, yeah, last one. No, I, I don't, I, don't, I think that Hamas has shown that the, there's no possibility to have a Palestinian state. Because every single Israeli who would say, look, um, the way to solve our problem is to have a Palestinian state, the counter, the counter argument would be, listen, those animals came from Gaza to attack us. If we let them have a state and they get all the weapons they want, uh, they'll attack us again. 
So there isn't the, the, the people who lost out in this whole situation, among others, are the people who wanted to have peaceful relations with the Palestinians the most. And let's not forget, but there's lots of Palestinians who want to have peaceful relations with Israel. The problem is that those people aren't allowed to speak up. They aren't allowed to speak up in Gaza because they'll get jailed or killed. They aren't allowed to speak up in the West Bank because they'll be kind of boycotted and, and kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, I won't say excommunicated, but, you know, they have to speak with a soft voice, not with a loud voice. Because both regimes running those two places are, dictator are dictatorships. And they could put anybody in jail anytime they want and take away all their belongings anytime they want. So it's not like, you know, Israel is dealing with a democracy. That's, that's the problem. Anyway, that's for the future to decide. Let's put it like that. One thing is for sure, there will be a political reorientation in Israel when this is all over. That's for sure. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu won't be able to keep his job, I don't think, for very long. Anyway, let's, let's talk about Poland a little bit, change the subject. Can you see this? Uh, can you see this uh, thing here? I don't know. There's like a big light over there, and it's sort of. I don't know where the rest of the light. I don't know where the rest of the light is, but. The the Poland of today is more or less shaped like an orange. It's kind of a big round thing, kind of a big round, big round, uh, big round thing. And Warsaw is the capital over here. And this is the Black Sea over here. So Poland is actually a maritime country. And Poland has Germany on one side. Germany on one side. And it has Belarus on one side, up on this part. And it has the Ukraine down on this side. Um, a little bit of, uh, so Ukraine, 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 down on the bottom over here. Uh, <clears throat> down on the bottom of Ukraine comes all the way down here. Slovakia, kind of down over here. Um, pretty well, those are the the most important neighbors of the country. And um, the, uh, like many other places in Europe, the kind of history of the place as we know it starts around the year 1000, 1000 AD. I mean, there's always people living here, but, um, you know, as a kind of an organized place uh, with a king, 1000 AD is the time when Christianity came to Poland and the king converted to Christianity and that marks the beginning of a kind of a Polish, uh, a Polish, separate Polish kingdom. Um, the word Poland and where the name comes from is in, in a little bit related to the English word plain, like a, a flat plain. So uh, that, that's uh, kind of what, what the origin of the name was. These are Slavic people people who speak a Slavic language, who've lived here for a long time. There was always movement of Slavic tribes back and forth from Russia into Europe. 
Um, and um, it was never really part and parcel of the Roman Empire. So the Romans never got here. Like Germany was about the end of the Roman Empire on the north and the northeast. Um, and uh, so there wasn't uh, that much uh, of uh, Roman uh, influence in, in northeastern Europe. Um, <clears throat> one of the uh, most important, there, there are several most very important, we'll call them dates or things to point out in Polish history. And one is one of the kings in around 1200 AD, one of the Polish kings who was trying to solidify his kingdom put out an invitation for the Jews of Europe to come live in Poland. And uh, he said they would be guaranteed education, religion, and all, all the rights that they needed. And this came at an important time because like what was 1200 in European history? It was, it, was the, it was the end of the Crusades. The Crusades were roughly, roughly from about 1,000 to 1,200. And there were waves and waves of Crusaders who, who, who gathered troops together in Europe, in England, in France, in Germany, in Italy, and marched off to the Holy Land, so-called, to, to conquer Jerusalem from the Turks. But they started fighting a lot before they got there. In fact, they started fighting in Europe against the Jews. So that was the, uh, the first thing they did. You know, uh, once they got out of their homes and got away from their wives, they got a little liquor in them and a little weapons. And the first Jewish communities they came to, they just beat up and robbed and killed the people. And uh, this happened over and over again, all over France, England, France, and Germany were all subject to these horrible uh, massacres that were not an ethnic cleansing. It wasn't the kind of thing that the Nazis did to kill every last Jew. It was more or less an army shows up in this town. They rob the Jews, uh, and then they go to the next town, and then they just disappear, or they're on their way to, to Europe. And by the way, before they got to, to go to the, to the Middle East to kill the um, the Turks and the Muslims, they also stopped doing plenty of damage to the Orthodox Christian communities. So people who were not Catholic, people who were Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, they carried out the same kind of attacks and, and murdering and burning down churches before they even got to the Holy Land. So this was a, a kind of a wave of um, vandalism, you know, in the name of religion. We'll call it that, you know. Um, so the Jews were on their way moving in general from the west to the east. So, you know, Great Britain kicked out the last of the Jews again around the year 1190. There were expulsions of Jews from town to town or even from province to province at different times in this whole 200 year period. And where the Jews went was where they were welcome. So they were welcome to Poland and Jews came to live there for that reason. And um, and a lot of them did. Um, the other important thing to know is that in the 1400s, Poland and Lithuania made a union. So Poland and Lithuania were both very strong Catholic countries. They joined the crowns together. One married the other. One daughter married the son. 
and they formed the United Commonwealth of Poland and Lithuania. And that Commonwealth ruled over large parts of what we would call today the Ukraine, into Slovakia, into Germany, um, into, um, into uh, the um, Scandinavian countries. It was a major empire of Europe in the middle, in the 14 and 1500s. And it, la and it lasted until the 1700s. So it really lasted a long time, this joint union. And the Poland of today, of course, which I will come to, is not the same as the Poland of then, because the whole of Poland was, uh, was moved. I mean, it was here, and then it moved here. So, that, so that's really uh, an important thing to understand. So comes the 1700s. I'm going to, you know, pretty quickly here, but comes the 1700s, Poland all of a sudden developed three big enemies. Who, who were those big enemies? What's happened in the 1700s like? Which one? Right, Russia. Russia, Russia started to get strong finally. It started to wake up. So Russia became one big enemy of Poland and was battling Poland constantly. Like you said, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, lots of the greats, lots of Ivans, Ivan the first, the second, the third, the fourth, four Ivans. These guys expanded the Russian empire. They expanded south, they expanded east towards Siberia, and they expanded west into Poland. So that was one big enemy. The next enemy was on this side, Germany, or as it was known in those days, Prussia. So Prussia was the next one. Prussia was the next one that was growing from a small kingdom, absorbing all the states, the German states around Prussia. Uh, also, Prussia was a Protestant country, not a Catholic country. So, uh, and Russia was an Orthodox country. So. We've got two opposite religions sort of squeezing the Catholics in the middle. And the third enemy, was, which was a Catholic country, was Austria. So Austria at the time was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, based in Vienna. And they were completely separated from Germany. They, were not, they didn't see themselves as Germans. The Germans didn't see themselves as Austrians. There were two competing empires, uh, one based in Austria with Hungary, Czechoslovakia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and uh, in the late 1700s, they together invaded Poland. And what they did was they, there were three partitions of Poland. A partition means they took pieces. They sliced pieces like a watermelon and said, okay, this is mine, this is yours, this is yours, this is mine. The last partition was in 1795, when the last of Poland was sliced up. So Austria took all of southern Poland. Prussia took all of western Poland. And Russia took most of it, which was everything else. And like I said, Poland of then went on, like, you know, this, the city in L Ukraine, L Lvov or Lviv, 
which is in Western Ukraine, that was a big Polish city. What became the capital of Lithuania, Vilna, was a Polish city. Vilnius was a Polish city. All the cities here in, in Belarus um, were Polish cities. Uh, Minsk and, uh, you know, all the other ones. Uh, all the cities in eastern Poland, Lublin, uh, Bialystok, uh, Brest, Litovsk, all those places were in Poland. And Russia took them all over in 1795. So in 1795, Poland disappeared as a country, completely disappeared. Um, obviously, the countries that took over Poland took over their Jewish communities also. So before 1795, there were very, very, very few Jews living in Russia. There were very few. After 1795, where the first partition was in 1774, um, all of the P Jews who were living, the Jews didn't move. It's just that Russia moved and it took over um, all the places where the Jews were living in Poland then. So that was the end of Poland. Um, the uh, Napoleonic invasion, the, the war, Napoleon's war, which succeeded in bringing kind of liberal ideas to Europe temporarily, um, didn't succeed. Napoleon, uh, you remember, marched through Russia. He was defeated in Russia, finally, by the winter and, and by the Russian troops. And he had to retreat. And when he, went, when he retreated, things went back to normal. So, you know, I would say that Napoleon tried to bring a united Europe a more or less liberal Europe, more or less. Um, and his failure meant that things went back to an even more conservative way of looking at things for, for, for the most of the part of the 1800s. And uh, so that was that. Was that. Okay. Now we're going to the First World War. First World War happens. Germany is defeated. Prussia is defeated. The Kaiser, of course, abandons his crown. The Austro-Hungarian Empire is defeated. And Russia is not defeated, but Russia, in the middle of the war, has this communist revolution, and they withdraw all their troops from the war, and they're busy fighting each other in Russia itself. The communists fight versus the anti-communists. That civil war lasted a few years, but uh, by the end of the First World War, Russia was completely out of it. They were completely out of the war, and what they wanted to do was to establish a Soviet communist system in Russia itself, which they did, and they called it the Soviet Union. So that was the revolution of 1917, October 1917, and they withdrew from the war. So what happened to Poland at the end of the First World War? Like, what, was, what happened? What happened was the same thing that happened in lots of other parts of Europe. New countries were created or recreated from the ashes of the empires of those big countries. So, so in other words, um, Poland was recreated, not on these boundaries. I'm going to change this. Let me go 
So this is this was Poland over here with Warsaw over here. The the um, the Polish state was created in this way, kind of like this, like this. So this was Poland. This here thing here, this circle here, was Poland from 1918 up until 1939. So that was Poland over there. Um, and Warsaw was the capital, but Warsaw was like in the western part of the country like this. And um, besides Poland, Austria was created as a country, Hungary was a country, Czechoslovakia was a country, Yugoslavia was a country, um, which other ones? Uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia became countries. Uh, lots of countries were just created after the end of the First World War because of the division of the, um, the, the empires that lost. You know, not even mentioning the Middle East and Turkey and all that. So, um, and by the way, the Ottoman Empire at its height, at its height, was even as far north as the bottom of Poland. So that's how far up they got. But that was in the 1500s. So, so this is Poland now here, 1918 to 39. Um, still has an enormous Jewish population of around 10%. So 10% of the whole country at the time um, uh, was Jewish. And the cities, of course, were much greater. Like the city of Warsaw was the third Jewish, the capital of, of uh, Poland and the biggest city in Poland. Some of the, some of the cities were half Jewish. The, the bigger cities, um, Lodz and Bialystok and, and, and Grodno and places like that. In general, in general, the Jews lived in the, in the cities and in more of the eastern part of the country and less in the western part of the country over here. Um, uh, in the 1920s, the depression hit in Poland, um, kind of uh, dictatorships ended up taking a lot of uh, the power in the country. And um, Poland was squeezed by the 1930s between the Russians, the Soviet Union on one side, and the Germans on the other side. And the Germans lay claim to uh, the city of Danzig, which was a German-speaking city. Okay, so actually, before we go, before we go there, before we go there, let's go back here. That um, the Germans had along the coastline over here a province called East Prussia, which was um, always a German ruled and German occupied province before the First World War. And the biggest city in East Prussia, anybody know what that was? No, it wasn't Danzig, no. The Konigsberg. It was called Konigsberg. Konigsberg, the Germans had been, the Germans had been on the coast of, of, of the Black Sea here for, for, for ages and ages and ages. They ran trading companies. They had um, 
shipping leagues, they had export companies, they were really were well settled in, in the East. And a lot of the Prussian nobility, the, 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 the higher ups, they had huge estates in East Prussia, huge estates, hunting estates, country estates, and all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, <clears throat> when the First War World War ended, when the First World War ended, this East Prussia ended up being lost to Germany. And um, uh, except that the city of Danzig, which was part of East Prussia, was considered a free port, a free port. So in other words, it had kind of status like Gibraltar, status like a kind of an international, a bit of a type city like that. It was a German speaking city. And when Hitler came up in the 1930s, one of his very first demands was that Germany take over Danzig. That was the, uh, you know, the, his beginning shot of I want to take over every German speaking place in the world. That was his first shot that he aimed at. Um, so, Second World War happens. We're going to go back to this map here. So how did the Second World War start? Germany invaded Poland, 1939. Um, from this way, like this. Germany invaded Poland. And um, uh, once that happened, then all the allies of Poland, like France and uh, Great Britain, said, okay, we're going to you know, declare war on Germany. The United States, of course, didn't. Germany, uh, Poland was conquered pretty quickly by the Germans, but Polish soldiers who could get away, they moved to France and to Great Britain to fight the Germans, but from outside of Poland. There was a very, very large contingent of Polish soldiers who kept fighting the Germans the whole war, but not in Poland, because the Germans occupied Poland. Of course, as we all know about the Holocaust and the murder of all the Jews who lived in Poland, the setting up of extermination camps in Poland to uh, receive Jews from all over Europe to destroy them. And Poland, you know, hates the word Polish concentration camps because they said they weren't Polish. They were in Poland. The Germans didn't dare build the camps in Germany because they didn't want the Germans to see what was going on, but they built them in Poland where they exterminated the Jews and any other enemies that they had uh, down the line. The Majdanek, Treblinka, Auschwitz, all of those places, Sobibor, they were all in Poland. So um, the war ends, Germany loses, and how does the war end? Because starting in 1943, the Russians started to push the Germans out of Russia and push them to the west. So it was really the Soviet Union that did 80% of the work of defeating the Germans in the Second World War. And uh, the Allies, it was only in June 1944, right, 1944, June 1944, that they landed on the beaches of Normandy in, in France. So, you know, this the Allies kind of came in a lot later than, than, than everybody else than the Russians, for sure. But in any case, uh, the war ended in 1945. 
and the Soviet Union marched in 1944, they were at the gates of Warsaw. They were right in the gates of Warsaw and they didn't, they didn't take over Warsaw right away. There was an uprising in Warsaw by the local people against the Germans and the Russians were standing on the other side of the river just watching instead of coming in and helping those people. Um, but in the end, of course, they did conquer uh, Warsaw and they marched all the way into Berlin. So the, the Soviets, the Russians, marched all the way into Berlin. There was this whole iron curtain that, de that descended on Eastern Europe. And Poland was one of the countries that became uh, under the rule of local communist strongmen, you know, doing the Soviet Union's bidding. Poland, East Germany, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, uh, Yugoslavia, Albania, uh, they were all in the same boat as being part of the Eastern Bloc of countries. But Poland was a bit different from all the other ones. What do you think the reason was? Right, that's right, because they were so strongly Catholic. So they really were strongly Catholic, they were strongly church-believing people, they, they, they followed the instructions of the Pope. They really, for them, Catholicism was part and parcel part of their identity. In the other countries, not so much. I mean, there were, you know, Catholics in Hungary, there were, uh, you know, Orthodox in Romania and Bulgaria and Serbia and all that, but Poland were the most religious of the law. So the, the, the minds of the people could never be completely controlled by the communist system. Um, Mr. Gomolka, he was the leader of Poland for a long time. Um, and there were uprisings here and there against the Soviets in Poland. Uprisings, small ones, which were very quickly put down, of course. Um, now, uh, I have to explain what this is over here. Because after the Second World War, what happened was is that the Soviet Union changed the boundaries of Poland. All of this piece here was taken over by the Soviet Union. All that I have marked over here, like that. That became part of the Ukraine and Belarus. In exchange, they added on all this part, which used to be part of Germany. So Poland moved west. You understand what I mean? So this is the Poland of today. This is the Poland of today. And this, wa this was the Poland of historical Poland, and certainly Poland before the Second World War. So what happened to all the Polish people that were living in this territory? They moved. Where did they move? They moved here, to this section that was added on to Poland by the Soviet Union. So you understand what I mean? They moved from here to there because all the houses that were abandoned by the Germans, the Germans all got kicked out. So all these empty houses and farms were taken by all the Poles who moved from what became Belarus and the Ukraine into Western Poland. So, uh, just to give you an idea, like probably the biggest well-known city here was used to be called Breslau, and now it's called 
the Polish equivalent of Breslau. So that was like one big city over here, like that. Um, so this is the Poland of today. There's still a very tiny German minority, German-speaking minority here who somehow didn't leave. Maybe they were married to Poles and all that. And there are small Polish minorities in the Ukraine and Belarus, but by and large, pretty well everyone moved. 1980, 1980 was the beginning of the end of the Soviet system, and it all started in Poland with, um, remember the name of the, the labor organization that got set up? Lech Walesa, yeah, what was the name of his party or his organization? Solidarity, solidarity. So. So he was the one who rang the bell and was dared to stand up to, not to Russia, but to the Polish communist authorities. And they just um, did not want to or could not destroy his leadership. They didn't want to go and massacre all of his followers. And that was the beginning of the end of the whole Soviet system. Because once solidarity succeeded without being harmed, then everyone else was started to speak up in the 80s. And by 1991, that was the end of the whole Soviet Union itself. Okay, So now let's go into the post-communist system, 1991. Everything fell apart. The Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, these countries got their independence from the communists in the late, very late 1980s. And since then... There have been two streams in Poland. So we're going to come to that, come to the elections. There have been two streams in Poland. A nationalist, rural, Catholic stream, conservative, and a liberal, urban stream based in the cities. Pretty well the same division as you could see in the United States or pretty well anywhere else. Um, the uh, conservative stream is the one that won Sometimes, they always had free elections in Poland. Sometimes the liberal stream won, uh, sometimes the conservative stream won. But of late, it's been the conservative stream in power with Mr. Kaczynski. Mr. Kaczynski is, was, is the uh, current president of Poland, prime minister of Poland, I should say. He had a brother, who, a twin brother, who was killed in a plane crash uh, in visiting Russia, and they, they, they stayed. It was the Russians that brought the plane down. Nobody knows if it's true or not. But um, uh, he's been in power as a conservative, church-oriented, anti-liberal, sort of uh, authoritarian-type regime. Um, he's compared to Mr. Orban of Hungary, although he's not quite as... Uh, I don't know, not quite as uh, dictatorial, we'll say, not quite as manipulative of the system. Uh, again, two other fellow uh, people in his mold are, you know, uh, Mr. Erdogan, Mr. Netanyahu, and Mr. Trump. So those, all that gang is in one kind of basket, we'll say. To one degree or another, they share the same authoritarian, anti-democratic ideas. And um, uh, Mr. Uh, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Kaczynski passed very strong anti-abortion legislation, very strong anti-gay legislation, 
um, and uh, uh, also uh, to say that when the European Union expanded, we'll just speak a second about the economy. For many, many, many years, Poland has been the fastest growing country economically in Europe, many years in a row. And the reason for that is because the labor costs in Poland are a lot less than the labor costs in Germany. So many, many, many German companies opened up branches in Poland, car factories, appliance factories, uh, electronics factories, all kinds of things that require semi-skilled labor they opened up in Poland, and of course, there's free trade in Europe, so you can take workers back and forth, you could take products back and forth. And for that reason, Poland, um, uh, for that reason, Poland was the fastest growing country starting from a low base in Europe. Another thing is, again, because of the strong Catholic background, the birth rate of Poland is not as low as all the other uh, countries. And, um, you know, uh, you know, more babies means more economic, uh, uh, you know, need for all kinds of things. So uh, economically, Poland has been doing very well. You know, their standard of living is not quite up to Germany's standard, but it's far, far better than it was at the end of the Soviet system, put it like that. Um, so... The elections that just took place a couple of weeks ago were an elections that were billed by the liberal side as a do or die election. What they said is if we don't win this time, there won't be another election. There won't be another fair election. And uh, the uh, conservative party did win, but they didn't win enough. They, they didn't win enough. They got about 36% of the vote and they didn't get anywhere near 50. So it means that, and there were, and the, all the opposition, thank you so much, by the way, for coming. Thank you so much, hope to see you again next week. So I'll finish up quickly enough here. But the opposition between them had enough seats to, to get a majority in parliament. So the name of the leader of the opposition is Donald Tusk. And Donald Tusk was once the head of Europe. He was once the head of the European Union. So a very uh, center-oriented political uh, liberal person with liberal ideas. And uh, it looks like he will be the next uh, prime minister of Poland because the center-right cannot make, the right-wing people cannot make a majority in the parliament. So um, it, it's, an, it's, an earth, it's an earth change because the tendency, if the tendency in Europe is going to be towards more nationalistic countries, eventually the European Union can break apart because all of these nationalistic countries will say, I'm from Hungary only. I'm from Poland only. I don't want any foreigners coming into my country. I don't want any immigrants. I don't want any refugees. I don't want any migrants. I don't want any of, the, any of those people dirtying up our, our, our population. And it just means that they'll build walls around each other and Europe as, an, as a united entity would collapse. But this, this election in Poland really reversed the uh, momentum of that, we'll say, something like that. Um, oh yeah, I forgot, one thing I forgot to mention, I'm just gonna go back to, I mentioned Mr. Erdogan of Turkey. Of all of Israel's disappointments, I would say, 
uh, Erdogan's 100% backing of Hamas was probably the most um, disappointment for Israel. I mean, they knew who he was, but lately they've been getting along pretty good. And Mr. Erdogan said, I don't want any enemies. I want friends everywhere. And, you know, Israel um, started to reestablish stronger diplomatic relations and tourism and everything. And, you know, he, he appears in front of a Hamas rally and says, you are my heroes. So that was the end of the Israeli-Turkish rapprochement, we'll say, for now. Anyway, um, any questions, comments about this? Let me ask you people here, how many of you have any Polish ancestry? Let's start with that. Boy, it's like half, half of you, right? So it goes to show um, for 800 years or more, and there's a new museum of Jewish history in Warsaw. I haven't seen it yet because of my, my flight was canceled with COVID and all that business, but uh, I'm supposed to see it again. They, they opened up a wonderful museum of Jewish history in Poland, not a Holocaust museum, but a Jewish history museum telling about the Jewish history of Poland since the year 1000. Today in Poland, there are not very many Jews left. There are some, but not very many. Um, uh, but the ones that are there are trying to recreate a, uh, a kind of a new uh, life, uh, new life there. And they have, uh, they have the, the structure of it and they have the structure for it. Let's put it like that. Um, so yeah, any questions, comments? Yes, Bernie. Yeah. Right. Ah, yeah. Well, they're they're in, they're they're pretty much in the same mold, and I would say just to do to add a, do yeah, we had, we had, we we don't have it anymore, but we did have it. Um, yeah, I would say that the Morris Duplessis of the world and the uh, CAQ Legos of the world fit in that same rural, conservative, Catholic mode that um, the Conservative Party in Poland was part of, a nationalist-oriented thing of let's build a wall around ourselves, let's not have outside influences come in, let's protect our language, our culture, our religion. All of that is the same playbook as, uh, uh, as in Poland. And there was an election just recently in Slovakia where Robert Fico, he won the election and he's, I would call it a moderate, a much more moderate conservative than, than those guys. But uh, still, you know, uh, uh, you know, Poland, uh, as far as the Ukraine war is concerned, has been a marvelous uh, ally of the West because they know that if, the Ukraine gets captured, the next country for Russia to go into is Poland. So they've received more than a million Ukrainian refugees without complaining. They gave them jobs, they gave them housing. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, they, um, and they also gave a lot of money to the Ukraine. So on, this, on the Ukrainian war, they've been, both parties have been very supportive of the Ukrainian people because there are a lot of close ties between them. Even before the war started, 
There are many, many Ukrainians living in Poland, working as domestics, as nurses, as, you know, that, that kind of uh, labor like that, agricultural labor, things like that. Uh, because Ukraine was a much poorer country than Poland and is a much poorer country than Poland. So they had a lot of Ukrainians working there already. And when the war started, just many, many more came in to live there in Poland. And, and they've had a warm reception so far. Maybe they'll wear out their welcome, but so far, so good. Where Poland started to complain was that the grain shipments, Poland is a great, is a big grower. It's a big country, as you saw how big it is. Agriculture is still important there. They grow a lot of grain there. And Ukrainian grain was coming into Poland because it couldn't get out through the Black Sea. And then the Polish farmers were saying, hey, that grain is not being shipped off to Egypt or wherever it's supposed to go. They're selling it in the open market and they're pushing down the prices for our grain. So uh, Poland put in some kind of regulation saying we're not accepting any more Ukrainian grain. That you know, Ukraine has so much of it, they have to get, they have to ship it out every which way. You know, through Romania, through the Black Sea, through railways, through all kinds of ways. One of the ways was through Poland, and uh, you know, they they were that that that's been a bit uh, of a, a source of tension there. Um, yeah. Uh, also, Poland is one of those countries in Europe which is homogeneous, meaning that uh, you know, up until recently. Pretty well, all the people living there were Polish people, Polish-speaking people. Uh, they didn't have any significant minorities like in many other countries. So it means that the country has one less problem to wor worry about, either from a religious point of view or from a linguistic point of view or ethnic point of view. Pretty well, 95% plus of the people are Polish-speaking uh, Polish people. Um, anybody else? Nope. Okay. Well, listen, uh, have a happy Halloween. Be safe. If you're going out with your grandchildren, you know, watch they, uh, they, uh, you know, don't eat too much. And, um, you know, I, 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 I know from my grandchildren, it's like, you know, they come back with just so much junk. And I wish they wouldn't give out that junk. I wish they just wouldn't have it, you know. And my daughter made a rule. She says, listen, each of you, you're allowed to keep 10 pieces of candy. All the rest of it I'm taking and I'm, we're giving it to, uh, you know, the food banks and stuff like that. So uh, it's just, uh, uh, to me, it's an awful, uh, an, an awful, you know, from the point of view nutrition, the kids are so excited. Oh my God, we got so much candy and we're trading candy. You give me this and I'll give you that. But it's, it's creating a value which has no value. That's, that's what I don't like.